Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. First Peter chapter 1 is where we'll pick up. Uh, we just finished with Mark, and the reason we're going on to Peter is because John Mark was recording a lot of Peter's teachings. Uh, so we're doing, instead of just doing four Gospels right in a row, we do the Gospel, and then we do the other New Testament texts that are largely attributed to that author. Um, Peter's become, time has passed though. As he wrote Mark and was recording Mark, um, he was telling the story of Jesus and the resurrection, but time has passed. The church has grown. There are now churches all over um, what we call Turkey today, um, uh, the Italian peninsula, the Greece. Grecan Peninsula is what a lot of our epistles are named after. Um, Northern Africa, it's spread in other directions too. So as far as we know, the, the message of the way has gone all over the place. They're yet to be calling themselves Christians, but they have decided they are called the people of the way. Um, Peter's mentioned more than any other Gospels. He, there's a... There's a prominence to Peter as a character. All four Gospels elevate Peter as uh, someone of significance in the church, someone that they look to for uh, guidance and advice. Uh, the Catholics believe he was, he was the, the head of that first church, yet he called himself a brother amongst other apostles. Um, so there is a rising or a prominence of Peter that, that comes up. So when he writes a letter to your church, you listen. There's something to be heard in this letter. A lot of the letters get written because there were issues going on at a church, and the apostles would send a letter to kind of help resolve that issue. Here's what we think as people who are actually there and learned from Jesus, and this is how we would handle those things. So G uh, Peter gets known as a lot of things, and he gives himself a lot of titles. Verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the title he goes with, even though all his friends know him as a fisherman, the guy who walked on water, the guy who cut off a soldier's ear, um, the one who was humbled, but then, but then Jesus elevated again, the one who used to be called Simon, but now is called the rock, Peter, Petra. Um, he was the question asker. He was the person, the only of the disciples to rebuke Jesus. Like, that was gutsy, and it didn't work out so well for him. But at this point, time has passed. Peter's becoming an older guy. He's definitely in that position of authority. And, and that he doesn't say, Peter, the guy who's the boss man. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostolos is what that means in the Greek. It means a delegate or a messenger. It is definitely not the title of somebody in charge. It's the title of somebody who is humbly serving a king. And the king, of course, is Jesus, but he calls himself an, a man, an apostle, an ambassador, somebody who has a message to share. I'm just the messenger. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, this idea that he says he's going to write to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, those are all regions that were known to the listeners when it was first written. We'll stay on the word pilgrims. Perepidemos in the Greek, a stranger or foreigner. <laughs> so if they're strangers and they are 
in all these different regions, Pontus, Galatia, of course, there's an epistle called Galatians. We know there's a church there. A pilgrim is somebody that's traveling in a land that they, they don't call their own. It's not their home. And this idea was in the early church, was, it was popularized. We are all not of this world. We live in Minnesota, we live in the Twin Cities, but we're just pilgrims here. We're just hanging out until our true kingdom shows up. This replaces the word Jew or Gentile, and by using the word pilgrim, he's talking to both groups at the same time. And so it's a slight language change from what we saw in the Gospels. Of the dispersion, diaspora is the word. It means a scattering of people. Uh, This helps to date the letter because there is a thing called the diaspora. Um, Christianity was spreading to all the early churches, so this could just be a spreading in the sense of like Christians everywhere. Um, But it could also be in reference to AD 66, the Jewish revolt against the Romans. The Romans came back and smashed them hard. And most smart Jewish people got the heck out of Jerusalem and they spread everywhere. And the early disciples would have called this the diaspora. So we know Peter was dated somewhere probably after 66. People will say 64 to 66. Um, the rejection of the Romans or the, the, the crunch down on Rome uh, that brought on the Jewish people did spread them all over the place, the diaspora. So this idea of the diaspora really was never reversed up until 1948 when Israel was reformed and then Jewish people started moving the opposite direction. But from this time, for the last 2,000 years, Jews have been spreading all over the planet, moving to different areas. Um, And so that reverse direction is something that gets a lot of Christians that are kind of prophecy watchers, gets them really excited. This is the reverse of the diaspora today. At the end of the letter, um, (laughs) Paul refers to Babylon. Let's not be confused. That was a nickname they used for Rome. So if the letter got taken or um, whatever, you wouldn't kill the person with the letter in their hand. You don't speak against Rome directly. So when they said Babylon, they meant the capital and the home of all sin, <laughs> right? The, so they're talking about that city. So we'll, we'll see some dating that comes in here. There's some differences about this. The point of the letter that we're going to read today is to encourage all churches everywhere, thus the list of all these early church locations. Asia is included in there. For Peter as a writer, when he said Asia, he would have largely meant what we call today Central Europe or Turkey. And those like that was called Asia Minor. He was probably not thinking of the Chinese. However, there is, is some evidence that as soon as the first century, there were early Christians that moved over to China and started um, moving amongst the temples and monasteries there and sharing the, the way or the message of Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Elect according, so to the pilgrims of the dispersion in all these places, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So a three-part salvation that that Peter starts to refine. Again, after a few decades of sharing your faith, you get really good at using words particularly. And so what we see in verse 2 is is like a brain twister coming out of a fisherman. How does that happen? So elect according to the foreknowledge of God, they are special people, and they're chosen in a particular sense. Well, this sends people into mental conniptions. Well, wait a second. I thought we had free will. We chose to follow the Lord, or we didn't follow it. But it says here, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. This is a verse that leans a lot more towards the side or the idea that God has planned it all from the beginning. In other words, 
You are in this room not by accident. God has seen it. God has planned it. He's organized everything down to who's listening or reading this letter. So when you read a letter like this to all the churches, even though we're a few years past it, you are elect according to four. Now, God knew you would be here and he knew what was going on. Well, how does, does that take away my free will? Um, <laughs> the idea that God picks us is not, so this is like a basic syllogism logic issue, right? Just because God picks us doesn't mean we don't have to respond to being picked. Does that make sense? So people get caught up splitting hairs, counting angels on the head of a pin. You can get lost in whatever conundrums you want. It doesn't get you closer to what the book's trying to say to you. So there's this idea that, that you are insane. So you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God called you. He knew you'd be here. In sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. So there's God the Father. Notice there's the sanctification of the Spirit. And then notice that there's the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter's already using this idea that this is all part of the same God, the idea of the Trinity, or what we call the Trinity. The word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible where we get verses like verse 2, right? God the Father, God the Spirit, the blood of Jesus Christ. So in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience, you're now on the other side of that whole free will debate. So if we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit's starting to do something in our heart, then there's a response that's required to that movement of the Spirit, obedience, if you're not obedient, you're not on your way to heaven, even if God invited you. So all people are chosen, all people are elect. And this is one of those things, if you're worried about if God elected you to be saved or not, well then be, be saved and obey the Lord and you're saved and you don't have to worry about it, right? And if you're not saved or you're not elect by God, God didn't see you coming into heaven in the beginning, then you probably don't care and you're not asking that question in the first place. Like it's a really simple thing to get around in faith, or in a walk with Jesus Christ. So if you have to obey the Lord and you find people that don't want to obey the Lord, they're not interested in it. So what difference does it make if they're elect or not to them? It doesn't. Mark 6, 12. So they went out and preached that people should repent. That's the idea of obedience coming right from Peter's teachings. God elects. God has a foreknowledge. He knows who's coming into the kingdom, but he's expecting obedience for people that want to be in the kingdom. And that obedience has something to do with repenting. In Acts 2.38, Peter in his teaching says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the thing that sanctifies. We make a decision to follow the Lord, but that renewing part of our life where we work out sin and we get, it's a sanctifying process, and obedience is simply our side of that equation. We do what the Lord's told us to do. He makes us new over time. He changes us. Uh, for, for starters, giving us joy. So there's a free will response to a predestined calling. And it, it is absolutely a, a, a complex subject that we get into. There's whole books, whole sections of a library in the Christian bookstore dedicated to that topic. Um, and I'm summing it up in about four minutes. So if you really want to dig into it deeper, you can get lost in that milieu. Peter doesn't. It's part of his introduction, which tells you what kind of book we're, we're in for right now. And then he adds the third element, which is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no amount of obedience that you can do that will get you past the judgment seat. God elects you. He's called you. He's chosen you. He loves you. You respond to that with obedience but without the sprinkling blood of Jesus Christ, there is a sin in your life somewhere. We just, if you, if you doubt that, we can go through the Ten Commandments and figure out where it is. 
that sin will condemn you if you don't have the sprinkling blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't accept that Jesus gave his life on the cross for you as, as a propitiation for your personal sins, not national sins, not abstract sins, but things you've done, um, then you have that. So in summary, God picks us, the Spirit pricks us, and Jesus saves us. And that's the equation. That's the Trinity. It's how it works. Peter effortlessly shows this working of God in multiple forms for our behalf. And that sprinkling, that sealing of the covenant goes all the way back to Exodus 24. The sprinkling is a ordination term in Exodus 29. It is the purification of a leper. They are sprinkled, right, with this idea. In Leviticus 14.6, he shall sprinkle upon him. That is to be cleansed from leprosy seven times, divine perfection. Peter uses... All three, the sinners in covenant, ordained and saved by grace. So all of the Old Testament uses of the word sprinkling are captured in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, right? It does all of those things. It seals us in a covenant, it ordains us to a holy priesthood, and it is a purification from our sins, all packaged up in one deal. And Peter's using these terms because he's studied these terms, and he's using them intentionally. He says, grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Mercy is not being punished for things you did. Grace is a gift well beyond what you deserve. And the hope of Peter is that as we walk in the faith, that we're not just struggling through life every day. We're not just going through motions. We're not just pursuing empty things. But there's a grace that we feel in our life that we don't deserve. And there's a joy that fills us up. There's a peace that can be multiplied. Right? There's a peace knowing you're saved from your sins, but then there's a greater peace knowing God's got everything in your life handled. No accidents. The aspiration of Peter of grace and peace is also sufficient. It's enough. What he wishes for us is not like Lamborghinis. It is, it is not fancy things. It is not to be on top of this world or rise to the head of our professions. What he wishes for us is simple grace and simple peace. And I think that's a, for some people, that's more than they feel like they deserve. For some people, that just seems unimpressive. Until you realize that when it comes to the heart, that is all we need. That is what is sufficient. It's what Peter wishes. So we'll get into the, we'll get into the epistle now in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I think anytime you're going to discipline someone... Anything you, anytime you have to address something or rebuke or whatever, there is a, a graciousness to the words of a believer. And Peter's setting them up like with no doubt about their salvation. They're saved. And I think that's something where we tend to beat ourselves up over things, especially when we're being corrected by the word of God. But know this, know verses through three through five. That's sealed and done. And it's taken care of. Peter leads this letter like a prayer. And his thinking starts with a praise of God or an added duration. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea of when we're going to think about things spiritually, let's just think first about how amazing and wonderful our God is. How powerful our God is. What a mighty God we serve. And in the face of any trial, which this letter is going to address the trials of the believers. They're starting to get, when we get to AD 66, they're starting to get persecution. 
And so this persecution is going to be something that is a challenge for the church. What do you do when people don't like you anymore? And why don't they like you? We just sing songs and study the Bible. Like, why don't they like that? Why is that such a threat? But in the face of trials, the glory of Jesus is the first word Peter has for comfort. Keep your eyes on Jesus. His abundant mercy, the primary attribute towards us, is to not punish what we deserve to be punished for. Know that. No other attribute. These are the words of Charles Spurgeon. I I don't think I could do this better than Charles Spurgeon. I just love this. No other attribute could have helped us had mercy been refused. As we are by nature, justice condemns us. Holiness will frown on us. Power crushes us. Truth confirms the threatening of the law and wrath fulfills it. It is the mercy of our God that all our hopes are rooted in. Every other aspect of God, we will wither in the, in the presence of it. But mercy is the one thing that we can stand in. Any relationship with God is simply one of mercy. It's God's work. He's, he's begotten us again. Literally, the word means born again. He has born us again. We're born once into the physical body. We're born twice into a spiritual life. And I think Peter's emphasis here, again, is explaining that you know, when it comes to a new life, our physical new life, we started as babies. We're pretty helpless. We didn't know anything. We didn't understand anything. As a baby, you don't think about your history. You don't really think about future. You just think about food, right? That's all I want. It's food and sleep. Actually, as a baby, you don't even think about sleep. It's your parents that tell you you're tired. Looks like you're tired. It's time to go to bed. So starting as babies spiritually, being begotten again, we have to grow up. Newborn believers are like babies. They need to be burped occasionally. They need to be fed. They need their potty, your diapers changed once in a while. And as veteran believers, that can be irritating if they're not your kid. But as a church, we look at all of those new believers coming in. These are our kids. They do need grace. They do need that patience. There's a living hope that's there. Verse 3. It's a living hope. Not wistful, not desperate, not just like a kid's fantasy, but a living hope, one that's rooted in a past example. For instance, oh, he's sleeping so well right now. It's nap time. Part of training a dog, and I don't mean to compare all humans to dogs, but I kind of do. And when you train a dog, you give them a dog treat. And they go, oh, that was a good dog treat. What did I do to get that dog treat? And part of conditioning, behavioral conditioning for a dog, is that you give that dog treat consistently after behaviors you like to see as a master. And so when we think of a living hope, when we look for things or hope for things, my dog is always hoping for treats, right? Every time, anytime he does something, he's like, is that worth a treat? And there's this hope that's there. But the living hope is one that has been satisfied in the past. We have a hope because we've seen it happen before. And so what happens if I believe and obey? God answers with with response. We see results and growth. And so in a lifetime of a living hope or an abundant mercy of God, we are born again into a living hope where we get to live a lifestyle where we learn what gets a relationship with God going. And our hope is for the next time God moves in our life, the next time we feel God's presence, the next time we see God do something wonderful. And as you get through your spiritual life, you start to pine for those things, especially if you've lived a number of years and not seen God moving or doing anything. Like you just, is there even a God in existence? Well, you've never talked to him. Why would he talk back? But a living hope is one where I know this is going to, I know God's going to come up here. And that gets to be, I think for non-believers, a frustrating thing because we pray about everything because we have a hope that those prayers will get answered. 
It says in verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible. Jesus taught us to seek not the things of this world, but to seek the things of the kingdom of heaven, where they will not perish or wither or rust. And Peter is using the exact same language. Our living hope is not in things of this world. We don't hope for the next big thing. We hope for the things that are in heaven that are stored up, the outpouring of God's spirit here on earth, the results of an inheritance that we're, we're told we have in heaven. There's no empire, there's no building, there's no bank account in history that hasn't faded or folded over time. The Roman Empire lasted 800 years. It seemed untouchable, and it collapsed on itself due to sin. Right? And I think sometimes we live in a country that's had 200 years of relative security and peace, and we can put our hope in America as a country, but we've only been here 200 years, and there's already signs of what Rome saw after 700 years, end of an era, end of an empire. Yet through it all, through 2,000 years of empires rising and falling, humans have persisted, and the church has persisted. And for some reason, the Jewish people have persisted. How that's even possible is an act of God, which is exactly why he helps them persist, right? They're, they're, they're an evidence that God is with and part of the geopolitical workings of this earth. So we're begotten again, we're born again into a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, interesting that he's writing to a church and a lot of the people in these outer diaspora spaces ha didn't actually see Jesus rise from the dead. They have to take it on Peter's word. And so this is one of the things that we saw in Mark that, that even the 11 disciples didn't see Jesus rise from the dead. They were expected to believe Mary and those two kind of no names that came up. They were supposed to believe it on that. So when Jesus did reveal himself to him, he rebuked them for that. You didn't believe, even though you were told that I had kept my promise. Why did you not believe that I keep my promises? So when God says he'll do something, and we are told that he has done something in other people's lives, we're supposed to believe that, because he promised he would do it, and then there's people saying, well, it happened. And so there's an inheritance incorruptible that will be there for us, reserved for you in heaven. It's an interesting thing that we do things in this life that add up to a kind of an account in heaven that will be paid out. Treatment of people in heaven will not be the same. There will be different rewards and different crowns that we see through the scriptures for people in the kingdom. We're all saved. I'm happy to be in heaven. I've always said I'm happy to be in heaven even if I'm the street cleaner because the streets are made of gold. They'll be easy to clean. <laughs> right? So as long as I get into heaven, I'm fine. But there is this idea that those that are obedient and endure tribulations and trials for the Lord, they get special honor. And frankly, I'm okay with that. Honestly, when I meet somebody and I find out they were a martyr for Jesus, like they have a certain regard for me. Right? In certain faith communities, they call them saints. Like These are people we regard and respect, and I don't have an issue with those people doing. They did more than I did. They suffered more than I suffered. They deserve that honor and respect. So it's, an, it's a meritocracy in that sense. It may take time for us to get what's been reserved in heaven, but it's on hold, and we trust that the Lord has, has kept it there. Nobody can touch it or claim it. It's our inheritance. Verse 5, those who are kept. <laughs> it's not what is kept, but who is there. The who is the begotten from verse 3. It's you and I. It's us. You are kept by God. That's interesting. The word kept there is frureo, a military guard. So it prevents hostile access. It is as though it is the word you use for a city wall. We are watched. We are guarded. We are kept by God. We're protected by God. 
That doesn't mean you just walk out stupidly into a shooting situation, right? So I know Michael and Grant were just at a training seminar for that. But it does mean to some extent that our lives are being kept by God and we are being used by him as a tool. Now, if he wants to use me as a martyr, I'm there. If he wants to use me as a teacher, I'm there. If he wants me to use me to clean up messes afterwards, I'll do that. What do you want, Lord? How can I serve? And there's a certain attitude we have knowing that God keeps us, so we are willing then in obedience to serve him. Peter starts with the overtone of a battleground. The word kept here is not the a parent keeping their children. The word kept here is a guard keeping what they've been given um, in order to, to, keep, to protect. So by the power of God, maker of heaven and earth, unlimited power keeps you. Whatever happens to you in the faith is happening to you because God's testing and trying you. That's Peter's argument through this whole letter. Like, there's no accidents in what happens in your life. Each trial, each situation, through faith, the word pistis, the conviction of truth or a belief with certainty. This world and our culture has changed the word faith. It absolutely has. If you look at the, the, the history of that word, it is a trust or a confidence. Faith is something you're sure of. It's not something you, and honestly, I think one of the, the Christian philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, was one of the first people to be a proponent of this idea, that faith is something that you just have to accept, but you can't prove it. But he was operating in world argument frameworks. He was operating in a world of, of, of deconstructing philosophy, and he's trying to respond to other philosophers that were saying that you really can't know anything. And Kierkegaard was saying, well, you can go know a lot. There's just a leap that you have to take at the end. But that's not the original meaning of this word. The meaning of this word is something that has happened over and over and over again that you can rely on faithfully. So you're all sitting on a chair right now, except for those on the stairs. You have no doubt in your head that that chair will hold you up. Why? You don't know that that's not a prank chair that's going to crash in a few seconds. But it doesn't even occur to you that it's a false chair because you've sat in it so many times. And then the philosophers would argue, yeah, 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 yeah. But the next time you sit on it, you need a leap of faith. And I would just respond to that and say, only if I'm in your ridiculous discourse community. Normal, common sense thinking people will sit on that chair knowing it will hold them up. Not, not a leap of faith a confidence and a trust in something that I've experienced a million times before. So you're born again into a living hope and expectancy of something, but then you get this faith that has been the experience of fulfilled hopes over and over and over and over again. I've sat in that chair over and over and over again. Then you meet these mature believers where you're like, oh, I got this trial in my life. And they say, let's pray about it. Living hope. We pray about it. The trial evaporates. You come back, wow, that was fancy, that happened, chance. And the mature believer is like, no, that, I knew that would happen because God is protecting you with an unlimited power, right? And protection here is an interesting thing because it's a kind of, in this context, it's a spiritual protection. It's your soul that gets guarded, not your experiences. You may still be in a car accident. You may still have things on this earth, the place that is not your home, that may be horrible, tragic, disastrous situations, but your soul has this shield around it with an unlimited power that this world just doesn't understand. Because we're not living for this world, we live for an eternal world, a heavenly world. That's where we're stacking up our cards. So through faith, 
for salvation. We're born again, saved from sin. There is an experience coming down the line for us where we will stand before our Lord and be judged for our life and our behaviors. And we have Jesus Christ there stepping in going, no, 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 this is one of mine. I claim this one. They served me in obedience. My death on the cross was for this one. And I think Jesus would love to do that for every human being on the earth. We're all chosen for that gift, but not everybody follows through and obeys the Lord. Not everybody makes Jesus their Lord. They'd rather just get through this life and live for this world. Salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's like this thing that's, it's like there's, Peter personifies salvation like it's a character in the story. Salvation ready to be revealed, like there's this anxiousness that God can't wait to pour out salvation. For those people that are even like, did I make it, Lord? Did I do that? And for him to bring mercy to that humility and just shower that salvation, it's ready. It's at the gate. All of us are offered a gift. We accept it. We're born again. We're opened up to a new kingdom. Every blessing from God then becomes a confirmation that it's all real, it's all alive, and it's all worthy of our faith. All you got to do is step into it. But that new life, that living with evidence and hope and faith and salvation, that deal that we have, I'll keep reading, according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a lot, isn't it? Right? It's just stacked up. And you're like, okay, now I get why we're only doing half a chapter. In the last 40, 50 years, I forgot to write down the name of the uh, the guy. You remember the name? T.W. Bayer. We think it's T.W. Bayer. Came up with this article. And he said, I don't know if Peter wrote the epistle of Peter. And he put it out there, and it got published in in theologian theologian journals. And then it got quoted like a thousand times. And so in the last few years, last few decades, there's doubt about the authorship of Peter. And I want to point out where. It's verses 3, 4, and 5. Verse 1 is not a problem. It actually says, Peter, here's my authorship, right? So this was never doubted, right? But the doubt comes out of this. Modern scholars believe that a fisherman could never write those sentences, ever. And there is a great arrogance in academia right now. I'm sorry, you guys. I repent of being an academic. There's a great arrogance in academics, a modern questioning of the education level of the writer, and then saying Peter didn't write this epistle because of that. That's nonsense. And we need to see through that a little bit. Here's the great arrogance. They're assuming that because someone knows how to catch fish, that they don't know how to learn and grow over a lifetime. It's been decades since he was a fisherman. He had three years of training under Jesus Christ himself, and he's been out teaching and preaching the gospel ever since. I don't know about you, but college is only four years, and I think learning from Jesus would be far more effective than four years of college. Peter's been out teaching the scriptures and reading them when he gets home at night and going to church and reading Bible studies like we do for decades. Do you think there would be no effect on that process? He's never had to refine how he talks about his faith? Nonsense. Not only that, but Jewish kids actually learn to read. They're one of the most literate cultures in the history of the world. 
So what concerns me in that sense isn't that there might be an argument that Peter didn't write this letter. What concerns me is how popularized it's gotten over the past 30 or 40 years. What we used to be able to just dismiss as drivel is now getting grabbed onto by scholars. Well, I'm going to cite this source because so-and-so said that, that, that Peter didn't write this letter. And then they just cite the source and they repeat it. But that's what science is becoming today. It's not a search for truth. In the last hundred years, it's turned into a political agenda. So you grab what you like, you repeat it, and you cite it. And just because you cited something doesn't mean that the person you cited knew what they were talking about. But it becomes this repeated cycle. So I want to point out and just counter this argument, if you care that much about it, humor me in this. We've seen his education in the Bible actually stands up for itself. It actually explains how a fisherman could write this sentence. I'll give it to you. First, Peter failed Jesus horribly. He didn't watch and pray in the garden. He didn't stand up for Jesus. He didn't stand with Jesus. And he ran away from the disciples afterwards. He was an utter and total failure. Bible admits it. Then he got mercy. In verse 3, Peter repeats mercy. Then he saw it. Then he got hope because he got to, see, he got to witness and, and, and see Jesus resurrected. We saw that. Verse 4, Jesus taught him about the treasures in heaven. He didn't make this up himself. Matthew 6.20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. Peter's not making that up. He's repeating what his teacher taught him in his own simpler version of it. Right? And then he's been kept by God. Verse 5 concept. Acts 12.5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, same word, in the book of Acts. But constant prayer was offered to God by him, or to God for him by the church. The church helped to keep Peter while he was in prison. He's using these terms from life experience. He's not just making it up as a philosophical concept. He's lived it. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards were, the, were at the door keeping the prison. You know what happens next, right? He's kept by God, an unlimited power of the universe. God has different guards watching over us. It's not, we would say, oh, jail, tragedy, court cases, tragedy. And God would say, What's, what are you supposed to learn in that court case and in that trial? Because you're being kept. That's, that's what's left then is a very rational faith that Peter's saying, hey, all this turns into faith. You're not going to move Peter off his chair. Because he's been broken out of jail by God. He, his faith isn't some wistful thinking. It's a, it's a lived experience. Very, very different situation. Jesus promises all this to him in verse 5. And the end result of that is to be joyful. Like, this is amazing. What a deal. Oh, oh verse 6. In this, you greatly rejoice. And it just keeps going. Though now for a little while, if you need be, you've been grieved by various trials. There it is. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more than precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter immediately jumps to the primary topic of the letter, persecution, testing, and trials. This is typical, by the way, of Mark's writing. He just jumps to the next thing. We saw that in the book of Mark, only those quick transitions, that direct language, that clearness and boldness of Peter's writing isn't recognized by TD, whoever his name is, right? But there are indicators that we have the same person here in, in just in his transitions. We see that Peter has been there. He knows that the trials actually build faith, that they're a refining experience because he's been through all of those things. They make you better. And we don't live for this world. We don't care what people think about us in this world. 
we continue to take care of our heart with God, our heart with our family, and try to share it with the people we know in our life. It's really simple. And humans tend to muck that all up. The greatly rejoice, agalio. What the amazing thing for rejoicing is, I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like rejoicing. That's hard. You have to decide to rejoice. It's really hard when you're going through a trial to say, you know what? I'm going to set this trial aside and I'm going to rejo- I'm going to choose rejoicing. And I think that's what Sundays are for. I think God gives us practice once a week to put aside everything in our life and say for a few hours, I'm just going to be with the people of God and I'm going to choose joy instead of everything else in the world. And then I'm going to go back to the trials. I'm going to dig back in on Monday. But God's training us to do that because he wants to see who's able to put on joy in the middle of those tough, tough experiences. The word agaleo, greatly rejoice, they put greatly there. It's only a single word, but it's the kind of rejoicing that makes you jump up and shout things. It means to spring up. So if you want to know what that looks like, go to a football game and wait for a touchdown. That's what rejoicing looks like, but that's false rejoicing. It's empty rejoicing. But that cheering and shouting and yelling and that exulting, that complete abandon, that's what Peter's asking them to do in the middle of trials. What could possibly convince me to do that in the middle of a jail cell? And Peter's argument is, that are you there because you stood up for Jesus Christ? Because if you are, you are earning crowns in heaven. When you win the lottery and you get a letter that says you won a bazillion dollars, the natural response to that is, exulting, agaleo, rejoice, jump up and down. When you actually have nasty, mean people that persecute you for your faith in Jesus Christ, you just won the lottery. Not every Christian gets to go through that. But you just got, you just got a spot in heaven where you can sit at the table with the other people that got persecuted. Not all Christians get persecuted. Praise the Lord. Praise God for that. If you want to agaleo of the fact that you're not being persecuted, you can do that too. No, no harm in that. But for those people that great, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if you need to be, you've been grieved by trials. You go through those trials, but you're still rejoicing. And the world doesn't get it, but the heavens do. It, we, we have a reference to angels. Every time somebody chooses to obey the Lord, the angels in heaven exult or agaleo. They rejoice. We, there's another one. And part of it is we got eternity together. I don't want to spend all that time with two people. I got millions of people to meet and hang out with. So another person can say, well, great, there's another hundred years I can hang out, get to know a new friend. So the angels in heaven are like, yes, we're filling up the heavens. So for a little while, I think Peter throws in these pieces. Life is short. But even if you live to 100, 120, that's nothing. Our lives are passing. And you can read the Psalms and you can read those things. We live a short time and we get all upset when we die, but we all die. And our lives aren't that particularly long in a heavenly perspective. If need be, Christians are not doomed to this grief. They don't have to be in it. We're not bulletproof. We do grieve. We do have trials. We are human, but it's only a little while. It's only a passing time. God said, or uh, the Peter writes various trials at the end of verse six. You see that? It means many colored, multicolored. It's manifold. And it is, it's a word that they would use with granite, where you'd have manifold color, many kinds, many types. Uh, it's a word you would use for Joseph's many-colored coat. But the trials in our life come in a lot of different flavors and colors. They're manifold. 
their temptations, their trials, their tribulations. They're the consequences of our own sin, consequences of other people's sin, or just the consequences of being mortal. Like, the grief is horrible. And God didn't intend for us to have to go through the experience of death in any of its forms. But it's manifold. And in all of these things, all this junk, there's only one answer, one way, and one faith to deal with it. And that is more precious than gold, as Peter says in verse 7. What we're going for is way bigger than any of this stuff on this earth. Gold is tested by fire. He points this out. What you do with gold is you dig it out of the mountain. And then you, when you dig it out of the mountain, it's got a lot of junk in it. So what you do is you throw it in a fire. And you test it. And the way you test gold, you start to learn what grade it is, what high quality it is. But you also burn away the dross. You get rid of the stuff. You can't get rid of the junk without the fire, without the heat. And so Peter's comparing testing and trials to heat in our lives. The more heat in our life, the more reason to rejoice because God's getting ready to use us. He's going to turn us into a ring, a precious ring. Right? He's going to turn us into something that can be used for the kingdom of God that has eternal value and eternal glory. So God allows fire, tests, trials, and grief to see how we hold up to test our metal. Literally. Matthew 13, 22. Now he who received seed amongst the thorns is those who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. If your eyes are on the things of this world, you don't get tested. You just are unfruitful. Right? So there's this idea that some metal gets proven under trials, but some get caught up in the trials, and they can't take their eyes off the trials, and they miss out on the blessing on the other side of it. Can a person say they have faith without a trial when faith is an active thing? It's a proven thing? It's, you have to actually sit on the chair. You have to test the chair to say that you have faith in that chair. So faith works two ways. Testing works two ways. That it may be found. Okay, now we got an argument for um, an open theism. <laughs> These blessings may be found, which means they may not be found. So as Peter's writing this letter, that's maybe word that he uses in there, leaves everything up for grabs. Well, what's the variable? How you react to the trial is the variable. This means that we abide here. And if we're found where we're at... God sees where we're abiding so that we may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's God's hope for us. It's through all the nonsense of this life that we can be found. And when God shows up and he looks at us, what he sees us doing are those three things, praise, honor, and glory. Peter distinguishes each one. Praise is to commend or to be impressed with something. And as you go through your life, even in the trials, you're, you're impressed with how God handles stuff. Man, that was cool. I love when we have a major problem, like with Bible study and we got to figure something out. We'll just pray about it and a week later the problem just evaporates and we're like, oh good, it took care of itself. Thanks Lord. To praise the Lord. Thank you God for what you're doing. So we Christians, we can get crazy about this. Any good thing that happens in our life, we can just praise the Lord about it. And there's nothing that gets non-Christians more irritated with you than constantly being like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. The Lord didn't do that. I did that. Okay. Well, praise the Lord that you're starting to realize the difference between you and a Christian, you know. Um, to honor is to place value on a thing to increase the appraisal, appraisal price of it. This is interesting. The word honor there is an economic word. 
It's used for when somebody evaluates something and they honor the gold or the money that's coming in. So when you put the money on the weights to see if it is a pure metal, then you would honor that coin and use it for exchange. It's a really curious word that he picked. Greek words are really specific. But this one is to appraise something higher or with worth, to honor it. And then the glory here is to have an opinion of majesty, splendor, and elevated rule. So you bring glory to something, maybe glory that you, um, it has more to do with your heart of humility that what you see is majesty, right? There's two ways to look at the Grand Canyon. You can look at it and say, yep, looks like the pictures. Or you can look at the Grand Canyon and say, wow, look at what God has done. And one is to ascribe or to give something majesty. One is to just go through life bored. And so so this idea of a temporary world and the way we're supposed to be found is in praise, honor, and glory. There's a personal excitement, praise, an economic value, honor, and a civic ascribing of, of majesty or rule, glory. And so you look at this and, and what Peter's doing, and we summarize this as heart, mind, and soul, right? So all areas of life, praise with your heart, appraise, uh, honor with your mind, and give fealty or glory with your soul. They own, this is where my life goes. The world simply doesn't rank Jesus that high in any of those areas. The world has started to use Jesus as a swear word. I don't know if you've noticed that. That's the the honor that's being ascribed to Jesus by the world. It's Jesus is a place of mockery. More and more people. And, and to think we live in a Christian nation, it's only a name at, on our coins at this point. Vast majority of Christians use Jesus as a swear word. And so the idea of us as believers saying, oh, no, 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 when, they, when God finds us, there will be praise, honor, and glory for the name of Jesus. And I will not be quiet about it. Jesus is mighty. He is my Lord. He's my king. He has high value, eternal value. I want to show the enemy that the trials don't work on me. I think this is a great strategy, personally. If the enemy brings trials and God allows those trials to come in my life to test my mettle, I want my mettle to be true in praise, honor, and glory. So whatever happens, I want to make it so not worth attacking me. Like Satan's only got so much energy too. So when he comes at me and attacks me, I want him to realize what a waste of time to go after Sean. Or I want him to say, what a waste of time it is to go after his family. I want, to, I want Satan to say, it's anybody that knows Sean, it's a waste of time because he's just going to turn it into praise, honor, and glory. Praise the Lord. Give God the honor. Give him the glory. And so every trial I send actually backfires. That's what I want Satan to think. That's what I want the enemy to think. Right? And, 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 and it breaks my heart when you have believers that are just going from trial to trial to trial and they're not like persecution for the name of the Lord. They're persecution because they don't know how to praise, honor, and glorify God. And it's just Satan grinding those people over and over and over again. What do you do? How do you put up with things? What do we put up against death, disease, insecurity, failure, helplessness, war itself, or even just evil? What do you put up against evil? Praise, honor, glory, over and over and over again. Very simple weapons. But there are weapons, and we put those there. We choose to rejoice even though we're under the weight of all those things. We just say, I'm going to still put on joy today. I'm going to give God the glory. Praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, what Christ has shown to us 
not only his resurrection, but those other things in our life. Look at what God has done. Look at what he is doing. Then you get to verse 8. Whom having not seen you, who having not seen you love. I think Peter has a special respect because he failed to do this. Right? He failed to believe Jesus was rose because he hadn't seen it. Thomas wasn't the only one to doubt. But at this point in Peter's life, he just has this regard for these people who believe in the love of Jesus, who take that first step and start that walk of faith, whom having not seen you love. Man, blessings to those believers. That blessing goes, by the way, for 2,000. That applies to us. Though now you do not see him, Yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your soul comes alive. Blessings to those of you who haven't seen Jesus in person, yet you believe in him and you've received that faith and you've seen that relationship with Jesus and your soul just explodes with life. This is the first defense against trials. It's belief. So we fixate on it. We wear it. We put it on. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. We put this stuff on every day. God is saving us. I have faith. I have hope. This world doesn't matter. And those, that's an armor for us to put on against those attacks and trials. Peter's writing to a diaspora of believers that mostly hadn't met or traveled with Jesus yet they still believe. What an amazing thing. They're believing based on the word of witnesses. And after you take that first step, you're believing based on your own experience and you're believing based on the word of God, which has been proven for 4,000 years, 5,000 years, over and over and over again. It's not a blind faith. So they're, ba- they're believing at this. Mark 16, 14 is when they did not believe Jesus rebuked them because of their unbelief and hardness of heart. They had to see him to believe. And Jesus had an expectation for the church that we believe and we haven't seen. So Peter elevates and admires those people in that sense. Um, This is what Jesus said to Thomas in that same situation. John 20, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's a special blessing. This is another reason to rejoice. There's a special blessing in believing in Jesus, even though you haven't seen him with your earthly eyeballs. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like Jesus talked to me in the spirit. I had a dream. I heard a voice. Oh, great, but you haven't seen him with your eyes. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Wow. You get the same joy and love and glory as the people that walked and talked with Jesus. Same thing inexpressible you can't the word inexpressible there is the spiritual blessing that's the same or greater than the one peter knows he can't put words to it and even today we struggle to put words to it we try to tell people what it's like to just love the lord and it's really i don't know about you it's really hard to explain to people because they just look at you like you're nuts and you're like i'm failing the words i don't have the words read the psalms right david had some words Literally, no earthly words contain a supernatural experience. There's no way to do it. There's no, there, this is a non-earthly joy. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, they jump to this blessing. Jesus being alive is no less real to them than Peter's memory. It's no different. So it's immediate, it's current, and it's real. They, the receiving is in the present tense, that we receive this, this, this end of our faith, So verses 1 through 5, the glory of Jesus, 
is one weapon against trials. Verses six through nine, the experience of faith is another weapon of, against trials. And then as we move forward, 10 through 12 is prophetic revelation is a weapon against trials. The idea that God reveals to Gentiles is a place of rejoicing also. In fact, this was anticipated for millennia. That's what Peter's argument is. You guys live in a generation where God's revealing things to you and God's showing things to you that have been prophesied since the beginning of time. Think of that in the face of earthly trials. Think of what you have. You've got the complete word of God. The only thing that's missing is like the millennial chapter, right? But we've got the complete revelation of God. We've got Jesus Christ. We've got the experience of our faith. We actually have the word of God. That which has been said has predicted our generation. Uh, I just, I wish we lived in an area where we were making loaves and fishes and, you know, that sort of thing. And my goodness, look around. There are millions of believers on this earth and there are loaves and fishes that are just trying to get a few hundred, right? It was a slow startup. Verses, verse 10, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, to them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things, ministering there is to serve, they were serving the things which have now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which the angels desire to look into. All right, this is why we do Bible study. I love looking into this Bible. It has layers. You can just read it and it feels great. But you, it, it has depth to it. It has a perfection to it. I believe every single word of this book is there intentionally by God Almighty for us to be reading. For us, in verse 12. It's not for other people. God put this here for you to get your walk with the Lord right. He gave you this gift. It's worthy of reading. Peter roots this in history, not just the disciples, but a long Jewish tradition. The Jewish prophets had predicted a church era over and over and over again. And Peter's saying, this is when you're going through trials and tribulations, this is something to think about. Put this on your plate. It says to you or us four times in that passage. The prophecies, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of the church aid, this revealed truth, this perfection of prophecy, it's a gift for us so that we know the promises to come are just as realistic as the promises that were made about Jesus and about every other instance of Israel's history. There, it leaves a mystery. He doesn't cite his source. Notice he doesn't cite a passage here. I think that's on purpose. This is called leaving a mystery. Go study it. Like, what are you talking about, the prophets? It says, they inquired and searched carefully, right? There's a, there's a life process of digging into this word that will change your heart. Amazing. So, one, he's citing no source, I think, because he's leaving a mystery. And you could argue, number two, he's not citing a source because he's just an uneducated fisherman, right? Which is actually fits an uneducated fisherman to not know the source. But I think he's just leaving it open. Uh, to deal with the testing, Peter points to the prophets. Go study your Bible. Look at, well, first of all, you're going to see that a lot of prophets had to suffer some trials too, right? A lot of God's people suffer trials. So to put yourself in that category isn't discouraging. It's actually encouraging. And who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Um, <laughs> wait a sec. The prophets preached a message to 
post-Jesus resurrection people, that would be out of context. All the prophets were only talking about Israel. They were only talking about what happened back then, not according to Peter. Peter argued that they inquired and searched carefully the prophecies of grace that would come to you through Jesus Christ. You have a gift in that you've seen all these things revealed. Peter treats prophecy as relevant to the original audience. It's historically fulfilled, therefore it's been tested. He treats it as relevant to Jesus Christ, the sufferings of Christ, he says. That's messianic. And he treats it as true to the church for self and the glories that would follow. So relevant today, eternally true. And he applies it to the end of days. For a Gentile audience, he's writing to all of these things. To the church age, we look at prophecy in all of those ways, in part because Peter said so, but the Bible consistently says that all the way through. I think I just taught that back in Amos last week. Like, this is why we look at prophecy. The grace, the joy, the church age, all prophesied, all planned, all known. God's in control of everything. He's got it all laid out. And I take assurance in that. Peter creates a prophetical model for us to use. Tested, messianic, relevant, still prophetic. Not to themselves, but to us. We have a lot of folks in the church that want to take the Old Testament and relegate it to a contextual other age. Doing that would be not only to ignore the writings of Peter in the New Testament, but it would be foolish because you're taking away one of your chief weapons for encouragement and faith and belief so that we have an ability to take joy even in trials. You want to unequip a Christian? Take away their history. Remove it and say it's not relevant to you personally. What is relevant to me? You? No, I'm going to stick with what God has said and has given me, not to themselves, but to us. And that's how I'm going to look at it. Oh, no, 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 the prophets, they're just about Assyrian Babylon. Not according to Peter, not according to Paul, not according to Jesus himself. Not according to anybody actually in the scriptures. There's nowhere in the Bible that says the prophecies don't apply to us. It says what Peter says, the exact opposite. We're supposed to seek and inquire of them because they mean something. Frankly, at the very least, they show you the character of God, what God loves, what God hates. So we read them. And Peter's saying, go read the prophecies. We also read that to do it with discernment, right? To carefully seek. It says they sought what manner of time, what it was indicating. There is a mystery to be unraveled there. We don't know everything. And so that there's this element that um, which of the four ways to treat prophecy do we treat that particular sentence? And I, I think, honestly, when you get lost in that kind of cognition, you're not thinking about your trials anymore. And, and it takes away some of that stress because you're studying what God's doing, not what you're feeling. So Christ Jesus was talking them through it. He taught Peter that those prophecies weren't limited in their time or context. He taught Peter to inquire in search of those. And Peter is teaching the churches to do the same. First generation instruction. I love that. Ministering the things, serving or helping. The prophets were actually a blessing to the church of all ages. And the prophetic word from God is a gift that they stewarded it for us. They wrote it down. Thank God they did. Which now have been reported to you. There's a teaching going on here. It's not random or sloppy. It's precise. Those who have preached the gospel to you, and in Peter and including the other people teaching the gospel too, sharing the good news of Jesus from their own experiences, they're bearing witness to the, what Jesus says is true. 
by the Holy Spirit who is sent from heaven. So not only have you had teachers tell you about it, not only do you have the word reporting it to you, you also have the Holy Spirit sent from heaven that does something in your heart. It pulls at you. Most people that come into the kingdom don't come because they lost an argument with a Christian. They come into the kingdom because something in their spirit is just pulling them to it. They can't go away. I'm going to also say most people don't choose to follow Jesus because a girl or boyfriend brought them there. I just want to point that out. There's, it's an independent choice. <sighs> this means we don't have to do it on our own. This means you don't have to stress out. I'll find people that are trying to find God, and they're just stressed out because they're reading, they're doing it, they're trying to get there. Um, and, and one thing you have to do is there has to be a prayer where you ask God to help you do it. Right? So when it says, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, there is a spiritual, a supernatural spiritual element to, be, to being a follower of Christ. You have to pray and ask Jesus to be your Lord and King. You have to ask him into your life. Steph Wise says, God's a gentleman. He won't rudely intrude on your life if you don't want him there. Oh, how excited. How encouraged are those prophets as they see each person read what they said and apply it to their life and get fruit. I mean, I, I'm thinking if they get to watch what we're doing, like Elijah, he's got to be juiced up when you read his stuff. Jeremiah failed utterly in his ministry in life, but then has generations of people reading his warnings and following them. Like Jeremiah is watching going, wow, that was, I ministered to these people and they're being helped by what I said. Think of the trials and tribulations of Hosea. Like his wife was a prostitute. What a miserable life. But he gets thousands of years of people learning from his prophecies and, and growing and changing and turning their hearts back to their groom in Jesus Christ. And Hosea gets to watch that and there's a vindication that happens for those prophets. They're watching all of it. Ephesians 3, verse 4, whereby when you read, you might understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, but it's now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of this promise by Christ, in Christ by the gospel. Prophets are watching that. What a glory. What a renewal of our spirit. What an encouragement. Like, think of what God's doing in our age. All things that God did are being used for what's going on now. The only thing that's a problem is limited sight. Limited ability to see what God's doing. God had a plan for them. He has a plan for them, for Jesus, for the church, for the end of days. It's all under control. So give yourself two minutes of reading the news and then put it down and say, it's all God's working things out. It's either God's lifting his hand and his blessing, or he's giving his hand and his blessing. He's either doing that with nations or, or, or with individuals. But God's at work. Make no mistake that God's at work. The things which angels desire to look into. I like this. There's a song in that line somewhere, right? The things which angels, what we get to look at when it comes to the word of God, this gift that we have, angels wish they could sit down and go through this with us. Angels want to be at Bible studies. They look for it. They're not trying to get out to get to their game, right? This is the thing that when it's, there's this idea that knowing everything's orchestrated is amazing. One, God's still on his throne. There's assurance and comfort and endurance in that knowledge. God has done everything of glory, fascinating, even angels. This is a complex and wonder, wonderful, worthy enough book that even angels want to study it. 
what did God do here? This is stunning. And God's Holy Spirit guides us in our understanding and application of hope of faith. We can read 1 Peter 1 and understand it. It can make sense to us. And there's, a, an, a, there's an angels watching this all unfold. And the idea of desiring to look into is like they're on their edge of their seats watching what we do as humans. And they celebrate when we figure it out. They love it when it gets done well. We got trials and tests. We got a team of angels, a cloud of witnesses, watching how we react to those trials. Will we stand? Will we have metal in those moments? Do we have a backbone? Or do we just need more counseling? Right? There is a sense that God wants us to win in those situations. Wants us to thrive. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 3. The word therefore is there next in verse 13. Therefore. What's the result of this? You got Jesus, 1 through 5. You got faith, 6 through 9. You got God's word, verses 10 through 12. Some people embrace these things. Some people, I think, like being unhappy. They don't want to embrace the grace, the joy. They don't want to rejoice. They want to wallow. And so you have these choices on how to live. You can be tortured physically, but you get to choose if you're tortured emotionally and and spiritually. You get to make that choice. we got some great people that have gone before us. And they celebrated and worshipped God even as they were being killed by this world. How does that happen? I, I would be like crying and saying, please, 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 no. You know, it would be tough. How do you get this metal in some of these Christians? Peter doesn't leave room for any budge here. You either choose joy or you don't. And the, the therefore is that those three things should do it for us. Jesus, the walk of faith, the word of God. There's, no, there's nothing else as a support system. We live on, on those things and those are our strengths. Peter points us to Jesus' faith and the word as combat tools. They're battle tested. They are how God keeps watch over us. And here's how to use them. That's the therefore in verse 13. How to get as much out of life as possible in the midst of trials and persecutions. This is the epistle of 1 Peter. It's a great letter if you're going through anything. Because this is the way God speaks truth into your head. Here it is, verse 13. Therefore, gird up your loins. We're going to end on this passage. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's like a word salad, isn't it? Like, oh my goodness, I got to break this down. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I'm holy. Girding up the loins, I think most of us have heard this before, they would wear these longer kind of robes, cloaks, tunics in this part of the time. So if you had to run, if you had to wrestle, if you had to get into any physical activity, you'd pull those up over your legs so you don't trip on them. All the loose flowing stuff, you tighten it up and you get it, you get it fastened. Right? Or you just take it off and you, you wrestle in the nude like the Greeks did or with a, you know, a little loincloth on like the more modest Jewish people would. But the idea is you gird up your loins. You get the loose flowing stuff so it doesn't trip you up. So when it says gird up the loins of your mind, a lot of people I think don't enjoy the rejoicing side of Christianity because they don't, they got tons of loose garbage in their head. It's just everywhere, and it's out of control, and it's flowing. 
And in some sense, when, it, when you gird up the loyalness of your mind, you take all that loose stuff and you bring it into focus. You tighten it up. Say, here's what I'm going to spend my thoughts on. Here's where my mind's going to be. And frankly, I think this is, this is one of the things, and I, I think you see mature people doing this. As they get older, they learn how to just control their thinking better. And it's not just whipped all over the place. And this is, I think, one of the tragedies sometimes of an undergraduate education. And instead of helping young people to tighten up their minds and discipline their minds, they help kids just get more loose and wild with their thinking. Here's another crazy idea. Here's another crazy idea. And they just keep throwing it at these kids. And they get done with college and they're like, whoa. And we're trying to get them to run a race and they're tripping over ridiculous things because they're being taught in foolish ways. So girding up the loins of your mind is to take that belt and tighten up that stuff and get ready for the race, get ready for the battle. Dianoia is the word for mind. And the Greeks have, I love the Greek language in that their words are very specific and they've got like 20 words for everything. Dianoia, the understanding part of what you know and grasp clearly. So dianoia is not your imagination. It's not your what ifs. It's not your emotional seat of your mind. In the Greek idea, the dianoia is the part of your mind of the things you know for certain. The things that you've made habitual and then you don't think about them anymore. They're just part of who you are. So gird up the loins of your dianoia. And then to clarify, he says, be sober. Right? Have your head on straight. It's a great metaphor. If you want to endure trials, you hike up the loose stuff and you put it together and then be sober, rest your hope. <laughs> To be sober, actually translated there, literally the Greek is be sober, be hopeful to the end. Get your mind straight, know where your hope is, and follow it through to the end of your days. Well, well that's really, really simple. Yeah, it is. Know where you're headed, know where you're going. Um, sober there is to, it, it, it could be applied to like you drank too much and now you're not sober. But the, in context with the girding up the loins of your mind, the use of sober there is to avoid the extremes. Avoid um, capturing or working on ideas that are to the edges of, of clear thought. If you're not sure about something, why bother with it? Let's stick with the things we're sure of. Um, so the idea of being sober here is to have mental control versus a loss of mental control. So the sober-mindedness thing here is about a balanced, careful thinking process. Um, where we don't allow the extremes. Now, it's one thing to understand what the extremes are and to learn about them. It's another thing to sit and dwell on them and actually entertain them, right? So to have a clear, sober mind, to be hopeful, this is the part we can't capture, it's not ours. We can capture and gird up our mind and be sober, but that hope has to be a relationship with God, trusting in God, given all the other options out there. And I think this is interesting. If you're looking for purpose in life and you have a sober mind thinking about it, of all the options of how to think about and go through life, the only one that actually has fruit are those people following Jesus Christ. And I would entertain the argument of those following Yahweh in the Jewish faith, faithfully, right? When you're following the right God with a sober mind, it actually bears fruit. So the reasonable result is like, why don't we follow the thing where people actually grow and have joy and can take joy in trial and tribulation as an endurance for all things? Jesus taught them how to do this, to watch and to pray and to go and preach. So if you go up, if you gird up your mind in the kingdom, there's a watchfulness, a prayerfulness, a goingness, and a preachingness. Tell people about it. 
And so if I want to just focus my mind and I can do that, Matthew 26, 41, the watch and pray was lest you enter into temptation. If you're not focusing on the Lord, you're focusing on emptiness, vanity, and sin. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is a battle that you fight with yourself. Girding up your mind. Fully upon, here's the other piece. We do it fully upon the grace that is brought, is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace keeps getting used. Verse 2, uh, it was part of the greeting. Verse 10, it was predicted. Verse 13, now grace is brought to us. Peter likes the idea of grace. He keeps bringing it up. And I think that's because he experienced grace. And we got to see that. What a beautiful thing. So rest your hope fully upon the grace. Mercy is to not be punished. Grace is to get a gift. So we rest our hope on the fact that there's just this blessing. And this is my hope that everyone in this room, everyone that listens to this, that you can think back on your life and you know a time when God just blessed you and you know it was God. And if that's not there, then gird up your mind, be in the word, think about, meditate on the gift of Jesus and be starting to be obedient to him in your walk and it will have, God promises that he'll reveal himself to you. And you can think of those times where you just undeniably God was with you in that. God was coaching you in that. God was giving you comfort in that thing. So we meditate on those things. We meditate fully upon the grace that is brought to you, the things God's done in our own lives. Starting with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when you first heard about Jesus in such a way that you said, I want to follow that? Don't forget that moment. Hold on to it like a precious jewel that you will take with you all the way through eternity. That time when you decided, I'm going to stop living for myself, I'm going to start living for my king. That grace, that revelation is a mix between your free will and God opening your eyes and heart and softening your mind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, many come to Christ uh, as, as an intellectual decision. Many come to Christ because they are self-willing themselves into a church lifestyle. Many people come to Christ, I think, and because Christ is an authority and they just want to respect an authority, I think those approaches generally fade away and fail. And you got the parable of the seeds to kind of talk about how that works a little bit. Our intellect is a beautiful thing, but sober-mindedness is what's called for here. A controlled mind. Reason is invited by God, but it doesn't save us. Grace does. So a truly sober-minded people recognize this. There's, it's not an intellectual decision. It's one of allegiance and fealty, serving our King and our Lord, and we give ourselves to Him. It's a decision of a sober-minded person saying, I will live for God and not for myself. Actual reason leads to a hope in the grace of Jesus Christ alone because true reason finds that we are insufficient to save ourselves. True, clear thinking is that there's nothing you can do to impress God. There's only a, a state that you can be that will impress God, and that is obedient to his son, Jesus Christ, and the teachings of his word. One path, one way. So we give our lives, they're not our own, and we serve a new head in Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, as obedient children, to be a child of God. What does it mean to be a, a child of God? It means we follow his rules. Right? As long as you live in my house, you'll live by my rules. You say, God, I want to live in your house. Okay. One condition. I want you to, you're welcome into my house. Salvation, come on in. 
follow my rules, right? Oh, I messed up, I broke the rules. Here's discipline. You're in my house, you're my kid, you're disciplined when you break the rules. There's consequences. We break off of our former ways, we strike a new path, we gird up our minds, we rest in hope, and then we're let into the house as obedient children. And by the way, this is how you endure trials. This is how you get blessings in life. This is how all of those things happen, to be obedient, not conforming yourself to the former lusts. How sad it is when a Christian chooses to follow Jesus, but they can't let go of the garbage that made them miserable in the first place. I want to follow Jesus, but I still want to do this or that or this or that, and it's just the garbage of this world. Do you, why do you want to keep doing it? What did it do to save you? What did it do to make you happy? You know, and this is one of those, those things that each Christian has to work out. What were the things in your life that you just simply enjoyed, but you didn't worship them? And what are the things in your life that you actually, you lusted after them? You passioned after them? Because those things are things that you need to conform yourselves as a new creation with a new kind of lust for God. A new kind of passion for God. So you give up those things. Not conforming yourself to the former lusts, but to be conformed to the desire of God in your life. We're called to so much more than to be reduced to conformity to this world. To look like this world, to think like our, this world. This is why I love so, sober-minded, hope-filled weirdos. Like, I, I love you guys, right? <laughs> Just thinking clearly, walking truly, and you're not conformed to this world. Especially you get teenagers, they want to be rebels, and then they dress up, talk like, and listen to the same music as everybody they know. That's not rebellion, kids. We are to rebel against this world, but it doesn't mean to look exactly like this world and then because that's what the world calls a rebel. Nonsense. You really want to be a rebel? Be sober-minded. If you really want to be a rebel, walk away from sin. Don't do those things. If you really want to be a non-conformist rebel, don't follow the herd. Don't look after their fashions. Don't look after their things. Don't follow every news cycle nugget that they throw at you and get all worked up about it. Don't follow that. Be conformed to the renewing of the mind through the word of God, the Holy Spirit in your life, and the fellowship of the saints. Don't conform to anything but Jesus. And that's the hard thing. Our flesh doesn't want to do that. Because Jesus like lived pretty clean. He walked pretty righteous. He had good friends. He ate very well. He praised the Lord in song and in prayer. He studied the word of God and taught the word of God. Those are the things I want to conform to the things that I see Jesus doing. Peter lives, uh, Peter, James, some of the other, they leave no room. There is no room for compromise on this. And he, uh, he wraps, verse 15, he, he takes away any budge on this. But as he who called you, that's Jesus, is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Peter is not stupid. He, he knows that we're all sinners saved by grace. He knows we're not perfect. But he's telling you that if you want to get through trials and torments, this is your armor. The, the state of your sober mind should be to pursue holiness. Not because we're part of the holiness movement and we think we can be perfect, but because that's a target and a goal we shoot for. I'd like to run, you know, a, a two-minute mile, but I and I can pursue that knowing that I will never get there. But I can still pursue it. I can still do it with a sober mind. I can still go about that business with 
dedication and purpose over 50, 60, 70, 80 years, right? A sweeping summative statement that, that Peter puts in here, which is always relevant, always applicable, all cities, all people, all times. Be holy because Jesus is holy. You want to be like Jesus? Be like Jesus. So why do we seek girded sober minds and rested living hopes? Because Jesus did. And we love him because he first loved us. So simple. The word holy there is hagios. It's where you get hagios, Sophia. The hagios is the opposite of hagos. Hagos means awful things. <laughs> We're supposed to be the opposite of awful things. We're supposed to be not awful. I like the word holy now. That's a little more, maybe they're, we're supposed to be consecrated or separated. The word holy means to separate yourself from the awful. To be pulled aside. When they consecrated priests, the Lord didn't give them land on this earth. The Levites didn't get a land inheritance. They got a different inheritance. And it was a way to look at what a priesthood looks like. You know, to be set apart, to be distinct from the awfulness of this world. He who called you did it. Jesus set himself apart to go pray. He pulled himself apart to go be with his king. So this Holy Spirit, the Hagios Numa, is to be set apart in spirit or the, the one voice in our life that isn't awful. That's the Holy Spirit. The one voice in our life that isn't awful. That's the Holy Spirit. So we set ourselves apart for that. Be holy in all your conduct. Be hagios in all your conduct. Be not awful in all your conduct. Can we do that? Can we just not be awful to each other? I just, that phrasing makes more sense to me. I don't know why. Like, oh, I can't be perfect. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm asking you to not be awful. Like, look at humanity. Look at what we do to each other. Look at the lawsuits. Look at the accusations. Look at the jealousy, the hatred, the envy, the strife. The strife. Oh, my word. Can we just not do that? And so we gather together as people trying to be holy, not perfect, set apart, not religious, but different. And that's doable. That's not spiritual perfection. That's spiritual practice. So we practice holiness. We practice being set apart. I want to be different. I want to go out with a group of guys that are all talking about something that's empty and stupid and then say, I don't care about that. I care about Jesus Christ. Can we use this for ministry? Right? And that's an annoying thing to say sometimes. So you have to use some diplomacy, some etiquette, some grace, because you actually want to win people. But just that idea of being different. Leviticus 11, Leviticus um, 44, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20, verse 7, be holy, I'm holy. It's over and over and over again through the Old Testament. The whole purpose was to be holy, to be set apart. Peter's reason is because God said so, because it is written, verse 16, be holy for I'm holy. I like that. That's Peter. That's the Peter I remember from Mark. Why should I be holy? Because God said so. Now shut up and do it. That's, Paul, that's Peter. He's just grown up and is using bigger words now. Right? But this is the same, the spirit of Peter is still here. Um, it hasn't changed. Grace is not a place for us to make excuses. Grace is not an excuse factory. Well, God's grace, I, I, I'm just so glad I got God's grace because I just keep sinning over and over and over and over. No, 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 no. Stop with that, Hillsong. Right? That is not what we do. Right? We have grace because of our sin. We pursue obedience because we want to be holy like God is. Because we love them. We want to not be awful. 
Freedom from the consequence of the law is not is not the rejection and spirit of of the spirit and guidance of the law. I'm going to say that again. Freedom from the consequence of the law, my salvation, is not an excuse to do whatever I want knowing that I have salvation. It's the opposite of that. Freedom from the consequence of the law is my reason to go try to do the law with everything I got. And not because mom and dad told me to, but because I want to. I choose it. My will is God's will. Leviticus eleven forty four. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creeps on this earth. That's pretty summative, isn't it? Same thing that God told the priests, same thing that we're told too. Peter repeats it right back at us. We're to be set apart. This disarms the trials of this world. This takes away the fear of death. This is what conquers this world's whatever it's got to throw at us. This is the foundation of the church. Thanks, Peter. Nice start to his letter. We'll keep going next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the conviction of it. We thank you for the assurance of it. We thank you for the hope of it. And we just thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you give. Lord, help us to understand that you're not here to condemn us. In fact, that's what Jesus came to prevent. But you are here to bring us into the blessings, the abundant spiritual blessings that you have to offer. So, Lord, I pray that we do that. We humble ourselves to your word. We get rid of the gunk in our life and we throw it off and we don't cling to it. We seek holiness. We don't seek to compromise. We don't seek excuses for compromise. So Lord, as Peter had so many blessings and gifted and and, and blessed so many people in his life, uh, the ministry that he had is so amazing. We have that history to look back on and we know that this works. We can reasonably understand that the people who really do this are really blessed and they bless others at the same time. And Lord, at the end of the day, it's not our will, but yours. We want to be your servants. We want to serve you in all ways. Bless this time. Bless the meal we're about to eat, Lord. And bless the fellowship time that we have together. May we just breathe and take a break from this world and be set apart for just an afternoon with other people that don't strive, that aren't awful to each other. Um, And Lord, help us to just be your servants and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.